Welcome to The Inner Circle. My name is Abiola and I'm a writer and speaker on all things personal and spiritual growth. Since 2015, I have shared my thoughts on my website and now I'm doing the same in audio format. Enjoy today's Food for Thought. What comes to your mind when you think of rest? Are you suddenly drawn back and do you think, oh, rest is for the week, sleep is for the week and my dreams are not going to work unless I do? Are you team no days off? Or are you on the other side? Are you fully on this self-care wave, cancel plans whenever you need to and just chill out, put yourself first? Whichever side of the spectrum you're on, sometimes the world talks to us as if the two are complete polar opposites. As I mentioned in my IGTV about the same topic, is the two of them are more similar than we think. And that's because they both focus on the physical side of things. They focus on what we do. They don't focus on who we are. We have a soul, we have a spirit, and we have a body. But all of the language around no days off and the language around self-care really focuses on the external. So as someone who's exploring the path of faith, exploring the road of spirituality, it's not just about finding the balance between team no days off and team self-care 100%. We're actually called to step out of that dimension and embrace the gift of rest that we are invited into as believers. And how do we know that that invitation is for us in the first place? Well, if we start right at the beginning in Genesis, God talks about rest. We all know that. That's probably not a surprise to you if you're listening to this. The concept of God resting on the seventh day has been shared, especially among Western or Christian societies, forever. But this concept of rest manifests itself not only in the Old Testament, like in Genesis, but actually in the New Testament as well, where Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and I read from the message version because I think this captures the essence of what Jesus is saying so beautifully. Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. It's so beautiful and this is coming at a time in Jesus's life and Jesus's culture where people were trying their best to be good, Jews. They were trying to be religious as possible. They were trying to keep every rule and they were getting themselves in this constant hustle of ticking boxes and trying their hardest and trying to look a certain way and trying to do certain things that would result in them feeling like they were approved and like they were good enough. So even though this concept sometimes feels very new and modern, rest, wellness and self-care, it's something that Jesus has been calling us to since really the beginning of time. It's something that God has been calling us to since the beginning of time. So we see that from these two examples of rest, in Genesis 1 where we look at creation, all the way through to Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus himself is manifested in physical form on earth, we see that rest is about getting closer to God and letting our faith become the foundation, not our efforts. That sounds lovely, that's great. It's a brilliant concept to have in theory. But why is it so difficult and what gets in the way? Why is there such a big barrier to our rest? The beginning of the answer to that starts in Hebrews chapter three and four. 
Just to put it into context, Paul was speaking to the new Christians, the new followers of Jesus, and giving them some advice on what it meant to truly enter God's rest. And when he was talking about rest, this kind of had a dual meaning. It had eternal rest, everlasting life, but there was also a manifestation and a promise that we could actually tap into while we're alive on this side of eternity as well. And to encourage them to pursue God's rest, to pursue this rest that was on offer for them in this life and the next, Paul recalled the story of the Israelites that had taken place all the way back in Exodus, centuries and centuries before, while they were in the desert. And that's where we're going to camp. As he was talking about the Israelites in the desert, he also provided a word of warning. He said to them in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 19, So we see that the Israelites were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. But then later on in Hebrews chapter 4, which is pretty much immediately after Hebrews chapter 3, because in the biblical times, books were written as large scrolls. There weren't separate chapters and punctuation as we know it today. Paul says something almost the same, but slightly different. He says, since those who had formerly had the good news preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. So in chapter three, he's saying they didn't go in because of their unbelief. In chapter four, he's saying they didn't go in because of their disobedience. So that got me a bit confused. I started to think, what is the connection between disobedience, unbelief and rest? I didn't get it. Someone who struggles with their belief system, it may be a choice that they have decided not to believe in something, or it may be something they're struggling with because sometimes it's difficult to believe in what you can't see. Whereas if you're being disobedient, surely that's more of an intentional decision. That's a choice that actually I know what I should do, but I'm going to do something contrary to it. And that thing is going to be what we interpret as bad or hurting somebody else. So I thought, okay, unbelief is quite innocent. Disobedience sounds a bit more defiant. Why is Paul behaving as if they're the same thing? Is he contradicting himself? Is he not sure what the two actually mean? Why is there this interchangeability between the words unbelief and disobedience? As I reflected on this story, I was reminded of a key part of Exodus where the Israelites were going on their journey from Egypt into the promised land. So I want you to go on this journey with me because it might reveal what the connection is between unbelief, disobedience and rest. So close your eyes and imagine for a moment that you, your ancestors, your family have been in slavery for 400 years. You have been hoping and praying for a way to get out and one of your own people, Moses, spearheads that exodus. After 400 years of waiting, your people can finally leave and have a land of their own where they're completely free. So all of you make this huge exit, or otherwise known as exodus, from Egypt into the promised land. But to make that journey, you have to go through the wilderness. You have to go through the desert. Can you imagine? It's hot. You're in the thick of nature. Sometimes that desert may have been very dry and you're just tired. You're walking and walking and walking. And by this point, you've actually been walking for 40 days in the blazing heat. At this point, you probably get a bit hungry. You're probably a bit more thirsty than normal and you need some food to strengthen you for the journey. Okay, you can open your eyes if you're still closing them now. That is the story of the Israelites where we meet them at this point. They have been walking for 40 days 
And I'm sure they had something to eat at the beginning, but by this point they're hungry again. And they actually say to Moses, why did you bring us out into this desert? Did you bring us here to die? Because we are absolutely starving. And even though in Egypt we were slaves, at least we had food. At least we were comfortable. At least we felt safe. It's crazy what we start to romanticize once we've left a terrible situation, right? Sometimes the difficulty of a new season actually makes us reminiscent for a time where we were probably in some sort of metaphorical slavery, but somehow the desire for comfort draws us back. Anyway, back to the story. So Moses says to God, God, your people are hungry. You've brought them out and they're begging for food. Do something about it. And God says, okay, absolutely. They're my people. I love them. I'm ready to do this. And God tells them, tomorrow, when you go out in the morning, you will find some food to eat. And I want you to collect as much food as you need for that day but none for the next day, as I will provide food daily. So the next day comes, the Israelites come out and they are surprised by this amazing food called manna and also quail that comes later on that they never recognise and they eat to their heart's content. Now the really, let's say, smart or shrewd people actually take some manna for tomorrow because they're thinking, we have not eaten in days, maybe even weeks. I, we don't know where the next meal is going to come from. Why don't we just save a bit for tomorrow? It's a smart thing to do. And I wouldn't blame them. If I was them, I would have done the exact same thing. So they save the manna for the next day. And in the morning, they wake up and God has done it again, as he said he would. He's provided a fresh set of food ready for them to go and take. They take it and enjoy it. But the people who have saved yesterday's manna, that manna has now gone rotten. They take it out of their bags or their pockets and they can actually see that it's rotted away and it's completely useless. Now this happens, let's say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday is about to come and God says, this time I want you to go out and take two days worth, one for today and one for tomorrow, so that tomorrow you don't have to bother going out, you don't have to work, I want you to stay at home, I want you to relax, chill, spend time with your family, spend time with God, get to know me better. So that's what they do, or at least some of them. They go out on Saturday or the day before the Sabbath and they collect enough for two days. Then the Sabbath comes and again, probably the same group as the smart people before, they go out a second time. They go out to look for the manna on the Sabbath because I guess they thought, well, you know what, we're team no days off here. There is no chance we're gonna miss any opportunity to make it a little bit of extra bread. So they go out and they search and search and search and they find nothing. And they spent their whole Sabbath day looking for food when they had enough for two days and they found nothing. So they've also missed an opportunity to spend time with God, spend time with their families, to rest, relax and commune as God had called them to. And that's what we do sometimes. We go out and we do double the amount that God has called us to do. God said, take manna for today and tomorrow will worry about itself. And we've said, no, 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 no. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and we're going to jump out and we're going to take it. But the thing is that the extra we've taken has now rotted and is still useless anyway. Or God has said, do enough for today and relax tomorrow because that's the time that we're going to spend together. But again, fear, anxiety has caused us to actually go out again a second time, go out on a day when God has called us to rest. And to be honest, we've received nothing anyway in return. So it was a waste of our time and we didn't even get what we expected to get out of it. 
This is why some of us get stuck in the cycle of work, this inability to rest, because despite what God is t calling us to do, despite what God is telling us, despite what God is saying, we are pursuing a path based on maybe what society tells us to do or what we think the smart thing is to do. Now, it's really important to note that there's nothing wrong with saving a bit extra for tomorrow and there's nothing wrong with being industrious and trying to maximise every opportunity you have to work. But what's more important than those two things is what God is calling you to do specifically. And this is where we get stuck. Sometimes we get stuck doing what's best practice or what everybody thinks is smart or what we think is pragmatic. And that is important, but it's not more important than what God is telling us specifically. And this is why it's linked to disobedience. Because God had told the Israelites very clearly that these were the instructions that he would provide on another day and that on the Sabbath, that was their day to rest. But because for some reason they did not trust, they did not believe what God had said, they did the opposite of what God had asked them to do. And when you do the opposite of what God asks you to do, that is called disobedience. And this is the connection between unbelief and disobedience. For some reason, even though God had been speaking to them, speaking to them through Moses, they didn't believe it. And because they didn't believe it, they didn't act in a way that was according to what God wanted them to do. So in short, right believing leads to right living. Disobedience is so much bigger than doing something that we think is wrong or that society tells us is wrong. Disobedience is actually about a lack of trust in what God has prepared for us as believers, a lack of trust in what God is telling us, a lack of trust in what God is speaking over our lives. I recently went to a conference and I learned that the word obedience or obey means not just to hear, but to submit yourself to what you're hearing. And this is what the Israelites missed. Sometimes in our lives we think, oh, God is not speaking, God is not speaking. But sometimes God is speaking, but we just don't trust and therefore we don't want to submit to it. Or God is not speaking and we don't want to wait until he does. And this is what traps us in a cycle of doing and doing and doing, even though God is calling us to rest or God is calling us to act and we don't act. So my question to you is, what are you hearing? And therefore, what are you submitting yourself to? Because the world tells us so many different narratives. We have so many messages bombarding us from family to friends, our own thoughts, the media, social media, the internet. There's so much information. There's so many experts. There's so much wisdom. Everybody has an opinion on what they think we should do. And in life's most important moments, I am less concerned about what everybody else thinks I should do. Even I'm less concerned about what I think I should do. What I really, really want to do is do what God has called me to because I know that God's plan, God's expectations, God's approach is the most effective and it's the best and that's the way that I want to choose. But it's a bit of a battle because there's so many stories that fill our minds. It's a battle of hearing the right thing. Because on one side, the world and our society tells us that the more you have, the more you do, the more people respect you. But the God's word actually says that promotion and power come from nowhere on earth. They only come from God. The world tells us the more you work, the more you'll have. What you put in is what you'll get out. But actually, the word of God tells us that even though we may plant the seed and we may water it, it's only God that makes it grow. It's only God that brings the ability to create wealth. Our society and our to-do lists tell us that we need to get this done now and we have no time for prayer or devotionals or quiet times. But actually God's word says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. So you see that there's 
a contrast between the two narratives and they rub against each other. They're almost opposite. And the question is, which one are we going to opt into? Are we going to listen to the pressures of life, peer pressure, the media, our to-do lists, our own perception of what's right? Or are we going to listen to what God is speaking to us specifically? But sometimes it's difficult to know what God is actually saying to us. Sometimes in all the noise, we can get a bit confused. And the two things we need to go back to are very basic and very available to most of us, which are, first of all, the word of God. Jesus came. He was the human word manifest, but the written word of God is also with us. And he left and we have this amazing Bible that has woven all these stories together. It's in those times that God gives us a new normal. God gives us a new standard, a standard that allows us to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, the pace that God gives us, the pace that Jesus calls us to. Remember, we talked about Matthew 11, where he said, are you burned out? Are you tired? Are you weary? Come with me. Don't follow the standards of your own expectations, your to-do list, the pressures. Follow the standard that I set because you will be unforced in those rhythms. Those rhythms of grace will be peaceful. They will sometimes tell you to speed up. They may sometimes tell you to slow it down. But the pace will be set by me and me alone. And it's the one where you can find real rest. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. And isn't that what we expect? Isn't that what we hope for when we talk about rest? Isn't that what we want? To learn how to take a real rest to recover our lives from the busyness of the world, to stop being caught up in the next self-care trend and actually start to get a rhythm, a rhythm that's set not by the physical world, but by our spiritual world, a rhythm that is not heavy, a rhythm that is not ill-fitting, something that gives us the ability to truly live freely and lightly.